Hello and um, good evening. Welcome to the second evening and the second installment of this course. And this course is our introduction to how to study and how to interpret the Bible. And I'm happy that you are able to join us again this evening as we properly delve into our study. Like I said yesterday, this study is going to be quite introductory. At a later time, I'm going to have a more uh, uh, in-depth study that I'm going to put up. And when that is ready, you will be notified. So let's delve into it right away. This evening, part of what I want to do this evening is to walk you through some of the technical and procedural issues. Technically, in terms of if you want to study the Bible, how do you go about it? I, I'm hoping to be a bit practical with you today, even though the practicality is still going to be a lot around principles and procedures. Tomorrow, by God's grace, I would be looking more at passages of scripture and then we'll probably be walking through those passages together. I'll do a little bit of that today, but it will simply be to illustrate some of the principles that I would be pointing you to as I go on in this uh, in the course for this evening. So, um, yesterday, I tried to say that there is a slight difference between studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible, which technically speaking would be the difference between exegesis and hermeneutics. So, when we talk about exegesis, we are basically talking about um, the attempt in the study of scripture to understand, to unearth, to unravel, to uncover and to discover the original and uh, yet yeah, the original intent of both the writer of the passage of scripture and then eventually the recipient of the passage of that passage of scripture. That is to say, what was it that the original writer intended to convey and what was it that the original recipients were expected to have understood from the thing that was uh, was sent to them or the letter or the epistle or the passage of scripture that was given to them. That historical attempt or that historical project is basically the task of biblical exegesis so that exegesis in that narrow and technical sense is a historical activity it's an attempt to travel back to uh, the original context into which the passage of scripture was given and then to find out what was happening at both ends on the one end the writer and then on the other end the recipient in order to do the task of biblical exegesis properly, it would imply that at the very least you have a basic understanding of both historical context and literary context. Historical context would be things like the culture of the people that received this passage of scripture and the way that that culture is reflected in what is written. Many times you hear people say things that well, originally when this was written, this is the context, the cultural context into which it was written or it was given. So, i give you an example for instance. When you look at the giving of the Ten Commandments, it is very easy to assume that if there were Ten Commandments and they were given on two tables of stone, 
uh, one way to look at it might just simply to say, oh, you must have had five commandments on one stone and then five on the other stone. But the historical context would tell you immediately that that isn't likely to happen. What happened there? Because in the history, in the historical situation, the cultural context of that time, historically, when these covenantal arrangements are made, they are made in duplicate copies, which is still very much what we do today. What we do today is like when two nations sign a bilateral agreement. When bilateral agreements are signed between two nations, the two nations that sign these agreements, they normally each have copies or a copy of that agreement. So you have the same document, but then it is made in two separate copies so that one is given to the uh, each of the parties that are involved in that arrangement. This is exactly what you saw going on in the giving of the Ten Commandments. There are two parties. There were two parties to that arrangement. One party was God and then the other party was Israel. So one of the tables of stone that you have is God's copy of the agreement and then the other table of stone is Israel's copy of the agreement. And this has profound implications. It has all kinds of implications, even though I'm not looking into that. I'm just trying to let you see how historical context can have a profound impact on your ability to understand the text that you study uh, uh, part time. Or you look at something like leverage marriage. Leverage marriage is the practice back in the day in the Old Testament, uh, many uh, many times in the Old Testament, where if somebody were to have died and the person died, maybe without having a child of their own, even though they had a wife, uh, it was the practice that the younger sibling of the man who had so died would take over the wife of the late brother and then the first male son that was going to come out of this marriage now would bear the name of the late man, of the dead man, so as to continue the lineage of the man that has now died. That was uh, uh, something that was practiced uh, uh, largely in the Old Testament, and uh, you still have echoes of it in the uh, in the in, in the first century uh, uh, ancient Near East. But a lot of that is changed now, and so uh, even things like slavery, things like slavery, many times people people object to uh, biblical morality or Christianity as a whole on the basis of the fact that the Bible probably is not so strong in its denunciation of the practice of slavery. One of the things that historically comes uh, uh, out, if you take your time to study, would be to realize that the kind of thing that happened between Africa and the West in the transatlantic uh, slave trade uh, situation is not like anything that you see in scripture. So that the idea of slavery and uh, slave situation, slave master situation in the Bible is a lot closer to the idea of a, an employer-employee relationship today. Except that the person who is the employee does not have as much a robust set of rights as an employee will have today 
but they were not as uh, uh, ill-treated and considered as things, largely speaking, as it was the case in the uh, in, in the situation with the transatlantic trade. But the issue is this: every time that you hear that somebody was a slave in scripture, the likelihood is you are going to carry your 21st century mindset and idea of what slavery is, and you are going to superimpose it upon the biblical text, which would bring you to conclusions that are totally unfounded as far as integrity to the passage is concerned. So, there's a whole case to be made for historical context if you are trying to do exegesis, which is the task of trying to carefully unpack what the original intended meaning of that passage that you are dealing with would be. Now, the other uh, kind of context that is important is what is called literary context. And the literary context of a passage of scripture is the idea that words do have meaning. And in order for you to understand the meaning of words, you need to be dealing with at least two very important things. Number one is the genre of literature that you are dealing with. And then number two is the immediate context of the word that you are dealing with. That is to say, what comes before this word, what comes after this word, and because our Bible, largely speaking now, is divided into chapters and verses, it's also important to ask that important question, which is, what happens in the verses before this verse, what happens in the verses after this verse? Um, I could probably just give you one simple example. So there's a popular passage in First John chapter 5 uh, and in verse 4. Now, in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 4, the Bible says, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. There's a whole lot to be said here, but to make a case for literary context, taking this verse as the verse of focus, I would say to you that when the Bible says, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The first thing you notice is the verse begins with the word for. That is F-O-R. And F-O-R, for, means, literally speaking, it, it means because. It's, it's an explanatory word. It means that you are not going to get the full picture of what this verse is saying if you do not read this verse in the company of the preceding verse at the very least. Because this verse is explanatory. It is trying to explain something. It's like saying, um, if you, if you are the son of the president, if you are the son of the president, you are not liable or... Okay, no. Let me give you a, a, a more simple and easy to understand example. It's like saying, if you are 75 years of age, if you are 75 years of age, you are excluded from paying taxes. You are excluded from paying taxes because... Because, alright? So that word because is a word for. Because senior citizens are excluded from paying taxes. Okay? Senior citizens are excluded from paying taxes. 
that's the reason why if you are 75 years of age you would be excluded from paying taxes so the connection there is the word for for senior citizens are excluded from paying taxes so if you simply have a, a, a statement that says for senior citizens are excluded from paying taxes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but when you when you bring the first part into it which is to say oh if you are above 75 years of age you are excluded from paying taxes for senior citizens are excluded from paying taxes you see that it, you you get a better picture of what is going on here that's the kind of thing that is happening here in first john chapter 5 verse 4 so it says for whatsoever is born of god for whatsoever is born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith the verse before this verse says so if we start from verse 1, he says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loves him that begets, loves him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now follow this very carefully now. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments for this is the love of God. So you see another four here in verse 3 because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous or they are not burdensome. His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not burdensome. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. So now you see that the context in which the uh, the statement for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world is given is that the commandments of God are not grievous. Why are the commandments of God not grievous? Why are the commandments of God not burdensome? Because that's the word for grievous here. It's the word to, to, to be burdensome. How could it be said that the commandments of God are not burdensome? Imagine that we live in the 21st century or whatever century in which you live. Temptations are all over the place. So in the 21st century that you and I live in right now, how could you actually, from an outsider perspective, how could you say that the commandments of God are not burdensome, that they are not heavy, that they are not a lot, that they are not overbearing? That's what the passage is saying, that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not overbearing, they are not burdensome. But he explains why. He says, because whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Why the commandment of God is not burdensome to us is because of that change of nature. Because we have been born of God and whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, it means it is natural to your nature as a child of God that you have the upper hand over the world that what whatsoever is born of God is just the nature of the things that of whoever is born of God to have victory over the world. If whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, it therefore means that the commandments that God gives to us are not burdening some, they are not unreasonable. Why? Because these are commandments that are given to persons that are born of God. And people that are born of God, 
it is intrinsic it is part of their nature now as uh, as people born of God to overcome the world the same way that it is natural for a fish to swim and to live in water and it is natural for uh, 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 for a cat to live on the land it is natural for a pig to delight in very dirty environment and in muddy uh, 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 situations but a cat would not a sheep would not this it has to do with nature it's not just about nurture it's not just about whether you have learned well or you have not learned well a fish could not survive out of water by its very nature it is designed to be an aquatic creature a creature that lives inside of water in the same way whatsoever is born of god overcomes the world the bible says that as an explanation for the fact that the commandments that God gives to us are not grievous. When an unbeliever looks at the moral imperatives of Christianity, the unbeliever could be tempted to think that this must be a very difficult life to live. This must be a very terrible life to be called into. You mean you do not womanize if you are a guy or you do not... Um, you, you know, you are not immoral. You you don't engage in uh, sexual immorality of any sort. And you say yes. And then they ask you all kinds of other questions. So you don't cheat. You said, no, I don't cheat. Like, you absolutely don't cheat on your taxes. You don't. You don't cheat in an exam situation. I don't. Like, you don't falsify because you don't. A lot of things that people would call being smart would be things that you don't do. And then for the person that is looking at your life simply from the outside, that person is going to feel that your life must be a very difficult life. It must be burdensome. It must be uh, unreasonably unbearable, the kind of life that God has called you to live. The Bible says, however, that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They are not grievous. Why? For whatsoever is born of God overcome it. The world and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. Now I've already spoken too much on this example, on this illustration so I'm not going to get into uh, the whole idea of this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith but it, it continues to build on that point. However you get my point here that in dealing with the literary context of a passage of scripture, it's important that each word is understood in the context of its environment, the word that comes before it, the word that comes after it, and then together it makes a verse. And the verse must also be understood in it, in the context of the verses preceding it and then the verses succeeding it. And sometimes the verses that succeed the verse that you are considering might actually be the first verse of another chapter. There are so many passages of scripture like that where the thought flow that you would have been engaging from a particular chapter does not end in that chapter. It may sometimes it ends like in the second verse of the succeeding chapter of scripture. And if you are not very careful in your reading, you may be tempted to put a very big full stop at the end of that chapter, even though the thought that you are engaging with in that chapter continues up to like the second verse, sometimes the third verse of the next chapter after the chapter that you are looking at. So this is 
basically the whole idea of literary context. Now, when you deal with exegesis, therefore I said, you need to look at the historical context, you need to look at the literary context, and then the second task, which is the task of hermeneutics, is more like the task of interpretation. So in a narrow sense, you could do exegesis without doing hermeneutics, but you cannot do hermeneutics without doing exegesis. And generally speaking, people would consider exegesis to be a subdivision of hermeneutics. But uh, for the sake of uh, understanding and clarity, I'm separating them to say that hermeneutics properly now is the task of interpretation. Uh, exegesis is slightly different than that. Exegesis is basically digging it back up. It's trying to solve the historical problem or the time problem between us and the original context of the passage. And then when we are able to reconstruct what that passage of scripture means originally, we now begin the task of interpretation, which eventually includes the task of application. So, I hope that that gives you a little idea of these concepts. I said I'm going to be dealing with concepts and then I would be illustrating them as I go on in this class. Now, the next thing to, uh, to, to say is, um, is to say that in our attempt to be students of, of the Bible, we cannot avoid these two enterprises, that is exegesis and then hermeneutics. Everybody has uh, uh, a role to play. Actually, everybody engages in this task every time that you read the scripture. In hermeneutics, you are trying to do uh, a contemporary application of the passage of scripture. In exegesis, you are trying to understand what was the ancient meaning, what was it at the original point in which that passage of scripture was given. Having said that, I want to deal with, um, I'll be dealing very seriously with the issues of questions in terms of Bible study methodology to say, how do I engage passages of scripture? Um, if I'm looking at a particular passage of scripture, how do I make sense of it? How do I get value out of the passage of scripture that I am engaging? Now, I will be dealing with those kinds of things. And in looking at that, I'll be dealing with questions. I call it questioning the text. Questioning the text. That one of the best ways to make profit out of scripture is to ask scripture questions that when you are looking at the Bible, every passage of scripture that you are looking at, you look at it as a conversation partner or you know, a conversation partner and when you are looking at passage as a conversation, that passage as a conversation partner, it means that you can talk to it, you, you can talk to the passage of scripture, you can talk to scripture and expect that scripture will talk back to you when you begin to ask the passage of scripture questions, you're going to find out that it makes it makes the task of Bible study way more interesting than than it otherwise would have been. And not just interesting, but also productive. Because when you start to ask questions, you'll also realize that answers begin to emerge. And where the answers do not emerge immediately, it points in the direction that you need to go in terms of further studies. So, 
I will be dealing with the kinds of questions that I'm talking about. But before I do that, um, I want to deal with a very fundamental uh, uh, principle that would guide you, particularly in terms of how you deal with uh, what you call doctrines or what you call principles or the things that you uh, that, that that you consider to be normative, to be the normative teachings of scripture. By normative, I mean standard teachings of scripture as to say, this is what the Bible says. This is the position of the word of God on so and so matter. How do we do that? Because the Bible is a compendium of so many things. There is historical uh, narrative in scripture. You have a prophetic narrative in scripture. You do have a correspondences in scripture. You have apocalyptic uh, type material in scripture. There's a whole genre uh, that is to be found in the Bible. And so how do I determine what part of scripture is supposed to be uh, uh, taken by me as instructional, as instructional to say this is what the Bible teaches? Because oftentimes we hear people uh, throw around words like, well, it is in the Bible, or the Bible says, or it is written in the Bible. And in that very famous uh, uh, story of the encounter that Jesus had with, uh, with the devil during the temptation of Jesus, one of the things you notice is the fact that when Jesus is dealing with the devil, Jesus does, this, does say to Satan, it is written. But remember that Satan also came back to say, it is written. And then Jesus said, again, it is written. So when, when you have scenario where it looks like two people are arguing, but then they are arguing as it were from scripture. I, 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 I'll say something. Let me explain what I'm trying to talk about and then I will illustrate. So I'm trying to say to you that the Bible has both prescriptive and descriptive component. They are prescriptive and they are descriptive components uh, to the word of God. The descriptive components of scripture basically describe the prescriptive components of scripture essentially prescribe. What is this thing about uh, prescriptive descriptive? It is basically to say that uh, there are certain things that are described in the Bible. They are just narrative or they are narrations that are found in scripture and they do not intend to prescribe how we ought to live our lives or how we ought to run our lives. They are simply uh, 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 faithful accounts of what happened. So when we say the Bible is the word of God, we do mean that everything that is inside of the Bible is everything that God wants us to know. Um, the Bible is the word of God does not mean that everything that is between the pages of your scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is a direct commandment from, from God to us. Not it, That isn't what it means when we say that the Bible is the word of God. When we say that the Bible is the word of God, we are basically saying that the Bible as we have it is the compendium of the information all right, and the knowledge that God intends for you and I to have. So, within scriptures, within the pages of the Bible, you have places where you read things like, first says the Lord, 
Paul says to the Lord, this is what the Lord says. Or sometimes we hear in passages of scripture where in passages of scripture where the prophet, a prophet might be talking and he would say, Paul says to the Lord, Israel has said that I the Lord I do not see or I the Lord I do not notice but this is what the Lord says so within that narrative you have statements that is made by Israel and then you have statement that is made by God but both statements are coming to us because God is informing us of a scenario, of a situation, so that it is the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration. So every scripture is God breath. That's what it means. It means that what you have in the Bible, you have it because God wants us to have it. In that sense, it is the word of God to us. But there's a narrow sense in which we may now want to find out what are the imperatives of God. What are the commands or the commandments of God that are to be found in scripture? And those would be the kinds of passages of scripture or the kinds of statements in scripture that would be more like the prescriptive passages of scripture. They are the didactic, alright, the didactic portions of scriptures. And that simply means that there are portions of scriptures that intend to teach they intend to teach doctrine. Passages of scripture that intend to teach doctrine are prescriptive passages of scripture. They are prescriptive passages of scripture. For instance, all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. That is a, that is didactic. That, that teaches us something. Um, but there are passages of scripture that re, that report the particular sins of particular people. For instance, Cain was the first murderer in uh, in biblical records. So Cain takes his brother out or woos, lures his brother out to the field and out there in the field he kills his brother. That does not, it does not follow from that particular story that God intends that every older brother that is angry with his younger brother should find a way to get them killed. The passage does not end with go and do likewise. It is simply a record. It's simply an account. It's simply a statement, a narrative about what happened. It's a faithful narrative of what happened so that you know that there was no lie involved in the story that you are reading because God has pretended over it and it is God breath. That means this is what God wants for us to have. And God is not capable of lying to us. So when the Bible says that Cain did kill Abel, it means that indeed Cain did kill Abel. But that passage of scripture is descriptive. It is not prescriptive in the sense that it describes what happened it does not prescribe what should happen. It doesn't tell us what should happen every time that you are offended. Actually, there are passages of scripture that prescribe what should happen even if you feel offended by your brother in both testaments of scripture. So in the New Testament, for instance, Jesus talks about how to deal with a brother if you feel offended by him or how to deal with a sister if you feel offended by her. That would be the thing that the Bible prescribes but the Bible also does describe the way that people using their own uh, uh, free will have chosen to deal with offenses at different times in, uh, uh, in history. 
Now, this is very important because sometimes the disagreement that you see within the body of Christ or when it looks like one preacher is saying something and another preacher is saying a different thing that contradicts what the other preacher says, sometimes it falls, it comes from this whole idea of a lack of regard for the sanctity of this distinction, the distinction between what is described and what is prescribed, that the Bible does not prescribe everything that the Bible describes. The Bible does not prescribe everything that it describes. The Bible does not intend to teach everything that it records. There are records in scripture that are not teachings of scripture. The Bible does not teach positively everything that the Bible does record. In obvious cases like Cain and Abel, it's, 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 it's clear to people that, you know, both by the cultural uh, sensitivities and our image awareness, our innate awareness in terms of the moral code of God that is in each of our hearts, which is basically what we call conscience. Everybody knows that there's something quite awful about what Cain did. So when we read that kind of passage, it's not likely that somebody's going to jump at it and say, look at it here. Somebody was offended by their younger brother and it is in the Bible that that same person, having been offended, took out his younger brother and killed him. Therefore, the Bible teaches that if you are offended by your brother, you can kill them. You see, we don't do that because that's a very obviously jarring situation. But there are more subtle situations than that. And I give you one, for instance. So I've been dealing with the whole idea, the whole issue of marriage and relationships for quite a while. So, you know, this example comes from that 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 aspect of our Christian uh, life. Sometimes you would hear people say things like, um, a brother does not have exclusive right to proposal, which means if a sister feels very strongly about a brother, that that brother is God's will for her, that the sister is within her right to go ask the brother's hand I don't know what to call it, but to go ask the brother's hand, maybe in marriage, to say, ah, brother, I, I love you, I like you, or uh, I've been praying and the Lord is informed me, or the Lord is impressed upon my heart that you are my husband, therefore, will you marry me? Or whatever the, vari the variant that is being proposed. But the general idea is that uh, a sister can basically propose to a brother concerning marriage if the brother is not forthcoming and the sister is so convinced that the brother is God's will for her. I'm illustrating descriptive prescriptive. Now you would you might be asking how what is the biblical basis for that? And some persons have said look at Naomi. Look at Naomi and Ruth. It was Naomi that asked Ruth to go to the threshing floor and lie down at the feet of Boaz and basically let Boaz know that you know she was available and Boaz was a near kingsman and so Boaz should make the move. Now whatever you think of that passage because first and foremost what the woman Naomi was asking Ruth to do was to 
informed Boaz that Boaz had a responsibility to her in virtue of being a kinsman, a kinsman. But then eventually Boaz did say, yes, indeed, I do have such a responsibility, but you, you need to understand that as far as this kinsman relationship goes, I am not the closest person to your late husband. And according to the rule, the closest person to your late husband is the person that is first in rank or first in position to fulfill this obligation to you. So you see, this is not just a, 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 a normal situation of a lady likes a guy and the guy isn't speaking and the lady goes ahead to propose so that even if you are looking at the intricacies of that story it is not an exact match to a lot of what you would hear sometimes when people are saying yes that is the precedent in scripture that a lady can propose to a guy or a lady can propose to a brother but apart from that even if those similarities were there and they are not but because it's disanalogous, it's, it's dissimilar to how it is being applied today. Because like I said, in that situation, uh, Boaz did have something of illegal responsibility on account of the laws that existed in the context and culture of that time as a kinsman. So he was a kinsman redeemer, but he explained that he wasn't the closest. The only reason Boaz eventually was able to fulfill that obligation to Ruth was because the closest kinsman redeemer had declined to take up that uh, responsibility. And it was simply because she had, that was how Boaz now took up the responsibility. If that kinsman redeemer, who is not named, but that is closer to the family of Elimelech, uh, to the family of Malon and Kilion, than Boaz had accepted to fulfill that role, then Boaz would not have been married to Ruth. So this isn't just a matter of, oh, I love this guy, I'm going to talk to him because he's not forthcoming. But let's even assume that it's much more similar than it actually is. The point would still be that this is something that was hatched by Naomi and sold to Ruth and then it was executed. It may have ended well. It may have even been something that God has used because eventually we realize that Ruth becomes one of the uh, ancestors or ancestress, if you like, of Jesus. But the fact that God was able to use that scenario to plug Ruth into the lineage of the Messiah does not say anything about the propriety of the act itself. And you need to understand that. Because in the same lineage of Jesus, you would find Pharis. I think Pharis. Now, Pharis was the son of Judah that Judah had by Tamar, who was Judah's daughter-in-law. So, Tamar was Judah's uh, daughter-in-law and Tamar's husband had died and in the leverage type situation, the younger brother of the husband of Tamar, which was Onan, Onan was now the one that was supposed to take over uh, uh, Tamar. But Onan was wicked. The Bible says he was wicked and the Lord slew him. When Onan died, it meant that Judah had lost two out of his three boys. So the last one was the one that was left and Judah was scared that this might also die. 
So Judah says to Tamar, please go back to your parents' house when my last born is old enough. I'm going to ask you to come back and then the leveraged marriage will take place and you can get married to him. But he said that because he was scared that his last and only surviving son might die. So when Tamar realized that Judah was not planning to let her have a child by Judah's last born or last boy, Tamar now decided to disguise herself when she realized the husband was passing by to go check on his farm. And you know the rest of the story. So Tamar seduces uh, uh, Judah, or Judah not knowing that that was Tamar, thinking she was just a harlot uh, or prostitute, goes into Tamar and Tamar takes in and becomes pregnant. The children that came out of that relationship were twins. So Phares was one of them. That Phares was the one through whose lineage Jesus Christ was born. So you cannot say, but look at how God used Ruth and eventually Ruth is even one of the grandmothers of Jesus. Therefore, however Ruth came to be married to Boaz must have been approved by God. If you say that, it would also mean that we would be saying that however uh, uh, Judah came to have children by his daughter-in-law was endorsed by God. So God can use a bad situation without endorsing that bad situation on its own. I just hope that you are seeing the kind of logic, if you like, the kind of reasoning that must go behind our enterprise in how we try to understand scripture and eventually how we try to interpret scripture. So, you notice therefore that when the lady, uh, 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 Ruth, goes to do what Naomi has said she should do. Eventually, she gets married to Boaz and becomes one of the grandmothers of Jesus. But all that that story tells us is something that happened in history. That story, the story of Ruth and how she got married to Boaz, does not tell us what should happen. It tells us a faithful account. It is a faithful account of what actually did happen. If we now are going to say, okay, this was what happened, but what should happen? What should happen? We will need to look at the didactic or the didactic portions of scripture. That is the prescriptive portions of scripture in order to find out if what was described in the book of Ruth is normative and should be the standard or if it should not. Just like you saw Cain killed Abel, it was a narrative, but then the Bible has a prescription of how to treat your brothers if you feel offended by your brother. In the same way, we see that Ruth goes to uh, inside or to uh, 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 to talk to Boaz, if you like, to come ask her hand in marriage or to take her in marriage and then eventually Boaz agrees and they go on to have a marriage that was one of the very beautiful love stories in scripture but it is still an account it's narrative it is descriptive it is not necessarily prescriptive so descriptive portions of scripture they describe historical events or they describe narrative they describe an account they describe accounts as they happened but prescriptive portions of scripture are intended to 
lay imperatives upon us. They are intended to teach us what we ought, what we ought, because what is is not always the same as what ought to be. So there are a lot of things that are that ought not to be, and so. In the scriptures, you have both accounts of things that simply happened that need not to have happened, and you have accounts of things that happened and indeed should have happened. It's important for you to know that distinction between what the Bible prescribes and what the Bible describes. So when you are looking at a particular passage of scripture, before you learn, you take lessons out of it, it's important to Ask that question, does this prescribe or does this describe? Now, if it simply describes, you now ask, in light of what the Bible prescribes, is this a good example or is this not a good example? So, we use a lot of prescriptive passages of scripture. We use prescriptive passages of scripture, I mean to say, to establish doctrines, to establish, to establish what ought to be, to establish uh, 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 the teachings of scripture but then we use the descriptive portions of scripture to illustrate, to exemplify to bolster the points that is made in the descriptive in the prescriptive portions of scripture so the prescriptive is where we establish doctrine and our biblical teachings from the descriptive is how we illustrate, we exemplify and there are times when we pick descriptive portions of scripture and we go on to do business with them and we even teach doctrine out of them. Every time that we do so, we are right only and if the things that we are saying out of those descriptive descriptive portions of scripture are things that are upheld and sustained elsewhere by prescriptive portions of scripture even if we do not refer to the prescriptive at the time that we are teaching or preaching from those descriptive portions of scripture. So sometimes you can have something that looks like a disagreement between two people and both of them might be appealing to scripture. But it could be the case that while one person is trying to insist on a doctrinal position simply on the basis of something that is described in the Bible, the other person who has a different view holds a different view because they are trying to make their point from something that the Bible actually teaches, something that the Bible actually prescribes. And these distinctions are very, very important for us to note and to understand. Now, uh, when I do the uh, the full course on this, this will be something to go into in more uh, technical detail and then to give you some kind of nuances because there are situations where you may not be able to find what you can call a clearly prescribed a statement in scripture in dealing with certain situations but in situations like that how do we decide on what we ought to do you know um, there, there are ways to deal with that but that is not the burden of what I'm doing in this study, this study is very introductory, is to give you basic handles on how to study and then how to interpret the Bible now, having said this uh, so far, I want to now begin to go into the more practical side of the enterprise of Bible study and the enterprise of Bible interpretation. 
And the first thing I want to say in this segment, therefore, is to say to you that as much as it looks like I'm teaching methods, methodologies, and systems, and styles, and that kind of thing, I do not want you to understand anything that I'm saying to preclude the absolute necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit, the absolute necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit and the way that we invoke and that we involve the Holy Spirit in that enterprise simply put is prayers. It's prayers. Prayer is one of the ways that we ask. Prayer is one of the ways that we seek. Prayer is one of the ways that we knock. So when you approach scripture, both in study and in your attempt to interpret, it's important for you to know that you are approaching something that is multi-layered and multi-faceted. So it's both multi-layered and it is multi-faceted. Multi-layered means that there are different levels at which understanding can break out for you. It, it, it has those layers. And then multi-faceted because the Bible that you are dealing with, it does have what you might call there is a common uh, sense approach to it. And that common sense approach to it is something that anybody could attempt if you have the right literary material, you know, concordances, commentary, dictionaries, those kinds of things. And so we've seen people that do not even believe in Jesus uh, passing for professors of New Testament or theology and things like that. But there's a different side to it. There is a spiritual side to it. And that spiritual side to it is something that you cannot make happen for yourself by yourself without the help of the Blessed Holy Spirit. And so I want to underscore in this segment now the utter necessity of prayer and the involvement of the Holy Spirit in your Bible study and Bible interpretation ventures and enterprises. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot make true profit, you cannot make real profit and real progress in your attempt to study and to interpret the scripture. The Holy Spirit is our help. The Holy Spirit is the, 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 in the, is the guide that Jesus promises to leave us. And he did say that he was going to teach us and he was going to lead us into all truth. Without the Holy Spirit, true New Testament Bible study and interpretation cannot happen. I'm going to say more about that, uh, but I wanted to give that as, the, as an important preamble to the next thing that I'm going to say so that you do not think that this is all about methods, methodology, strategy, and styles that if you can just get all of that, then you are home and track. No. So, having said that, I want you to notice that in... Um, in Jesus' dealing with his disciples, I, I'm trying to still uh, underscore this point that I have just made. In Jesus' dealing with his disciples, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, uh, this is after Jesus is uh, raised from the dead, and um, the Bible says in the... All right, 
from about verse 36 from about verse 36 so the two disciples on the way to Emmaus have returned to Jerusalem having realized it was Jesus that they had been uh, talking with and that they had almost uh, had dinner with so they go back to Jerusalem and the Bible says in verse 36 and as they thus speak Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them peace be unto you but they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit verse 38 says and he said unto them why are you troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have and when he had thus spoken he showed them his hands and his feet and while they yet believed not for joy and wondered he said unto them have you here any meat and they gave him a piece of broad fish and of an honeycomb and he took it and did it before them and he said unto them these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you and all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So you see that there is a decisive activity of Jesus Christ. There is a decisive activity of the Holy Spirit in enabling us to understand the scriptures. So every now and again, people ask me, like, how do you do it? How do you see it? How is it that you are able to? Whatever it is that they are talking about, the first thing to say to you is that there is a spirit of God in how we are able to make sense out of scripture. You are going to do a lot of study. You are going to do a lot of reading. You are going to ask the Bible a lot of questions. You are going to stay there. You are going to invest time. You are going to invest hours. You are going to invest months and years. But I want to say to you that if it is going to be productive, if it is something that God himself can own, it's important for you to understand that the Holy Spirit is absolutely absolutely necessary if you are ever going to make profit with scripture and in scripture so jesus opened the understanding of his disciples and apostles that they might understand the scriptures so that their ability to understand the scriptures after that moment is not just going to be totally explained by their diligence in study, they are applying themselves to whatever methods or methodologies they might prefer or they might have learned. It would be that all of those diligence, methodology, strategy, all of that would be effective because the Holy Spirit of God has activated the faculty within them that is particularly designed to understand scripture. There's such a thing as understanding to understand scriptures. He opened their understanding that they might understand the scripture. So when that understanding is opened, you now need to engage it. If you are trying to engage 
and apply yourself to Bible study without your understanding being open, you are going to be uh, uh, engaging in an effort or an activity in futility. But if your understanding has been opened and you do not engage scripture, the word of God is not just going to break out upon you or is not going to break in upon your spirit. It's not going to break into your mind and impose itself upon you simply because your understanding has been opened. Your understanding is open so that you might understand the scripture. What it does therefore is when your understanding is open, it now means that your application of yourself to the word of God is going to be fruitful. It means when you when you knock, the Bible will open up to you. When you seek, you are going to find. When you ask, all right, it's going to be given unto you. And I want to say straight away that at the moment that you became a believer, when you became a believer, you were granted this access. When you became a believer, your your spiritual senses were activated. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that that sense that is your perception, your ability to grasp and to grapple with the things of the spirit is something that is activated at the new birth. Of course, every time that you approach scripture, it's important that apart from the instantaneous thing that God does for us in terms of opening us up to understanding scripture, it's important that we are moment by moment periodically that we intentionally ask God to grant us light, to grant us entrance, to grant us access. The Bible says that the entrance of the word of God, it gives light, it gives understanding unto the simple. There's such a thing as entrance. That entrance is the entering in, the coming inside. So that it's like an outlay, it's like an outline, it's like a landscape, it's like a journey. It's the whole idea of knocking. When you knock, it simply means that there's a divider and that divider in context would be the door. And knocking presupposes that there is a reality on the other side of the door. There's intelligence on the other side of the door. So when I knock, it will be open. There is an opener on the other end of the door. So periodically or moment by moment, every activity of Bible study and Bible interpretation should be seen as a thoroughly spiritual exercise. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It should be seen as a combination of all of these. It is both spiritual, mental, and intellectual. That spiritually speaking, there is a Holy Spirit that superintends over the entire exercise that is the exercise of Bible study and interpretation and that when I come, I need to continually engage that Spirit. I need to continually ask Him for light, for direction, for insight and that happens in prayers. So for me personally, every time that I study the Word of God, it is also an exercise in prayer. I really cannot study without praying. So there is, there is and this is one of the beauties of life in the spirit. It is a fact that your human recreated spirit, your spirit as a born again person, your spirit can multitask in a way. That means that there's a sense in which I can be praying alright, in my spirit with my spirit internally and at the same time I am deliberating 
considering, pondering upon the passage that is before me. So it, it, it is as if I'm asking, I'm knocking, I'm knocking in prayers, and then I'm engaging with the word that is before me. As I'm reading it, I'm looking at it, I'm asking it questions, which is the next thing I'm going to be dealing with, which is what I call questioning the text. So I'm questioning the text, and at the same time, I am calling upon the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm talking to the Holy Spirit, I'm beckoning up on him, I'm asking him. So, apart from what happened to you when you became a believer, which is that God opened your understanding to understand the scripture, I'm saying that apart from that instantaneous act at the new birth, there ought to be a continual coming. A continual asking, a continual seeking, a continual knocking, so that what God did for you instantaneously, God will also, in a sense, continue to do for you on a continual basis. So there is a faculty within your being that is uniquely designed to understand scripture. It is the reason why people can understand chemistry, astrophysics, uh, uh, they can understand quantum physics I mean to say You can understand all kinds of things Molecular chemistry, molecular biology They can understand complex mathematics And yet Do not understand the word of God Because there is This understanding To understand scripture At this time Peter and the other apostles At least Peter and a few of the other apostles Were consuming fishermen They were accomplished fishermen They were veteran fishermen These were not people that were absolute morons You, you wouldn't say that They were stupid people They were not imbecilic They were not imbeciles So it wasn't the fact that They didn't have capacity for understanding In a generic sense But the Bible says that uniquely Jesus opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So there is that understanding that understands the scriptures and it is only Jesus by his spirit that can open it for any individual. It might be a good point at this point as this course goes on that you continue to, that you enter into that, that period in your own spirit where you are asking the Lord to do this kind of thing for you. Open my understanding that I might understand the scripture. It is a good prayer to pray every time that you approach the word of God in study. Every time that you want to study the word of God. This is a very good prayer to pray. To say, Jesus, I thank you because my understanding is opened to understand scripture. And even in this moment, I ask that you will enlighten my mind. You will open my understanding afresh that I might understand your word. And you say that prayer before you start and then it should be the continual desire and posture of your spirit while you are engaging with the word. I personally believe that one of the best ways to study the word of God is in prayers. That means you combine praying with study. That is what I do. And I have found that to be very, very useful. I found that to be very enlightening. And sometimes the Spirit of God literally calls your attention to details that you obviously didn't see and that you obviously could never have seen if you were left to yourself. There's a whole lot uh, uh, to be said as to why this is absolutely important. And maybe I'll come back to it later because it's not just about how you study the Word of God. It's not just about what you make out of the study of the Word of God. But the involvement of the Holy Spirit in that process is part of what makes it transformative. 
every effective Bible study exercise, Bible interpretation exercise is supposed to be transformative. It's supposed to be a, a life changing. It's supposed to be life altering. And that does not happen simply because of the black and white text that you read on the pages of scripture. It is because there is an, a, a, there is an accompanying dynamic. There is an accompanying power that energizes that thing that you discovered in the course of your engagement with the word of God. So, even the moments that you were reading the Bible, that you were studying the Bible, and you did not uh, enlighten upon what you might call a light bulb moment, like, wow, I saw something I have never seen before. Even when you don't have those kinds of experiences and encounters, during some sessions of Bible study, it does not mean that your attempt to study the Word of God that day was fruitless. It does not mean so. It just simply uh, means that you did not have what you might call a light bulb moment. But if you had done it right, there was still a lot of spiritual benefit that accrued to you from that period of engaging with the word of God. Why? Because if you do it right, the Holy Spirit is always going to be involved in your ex exercise of Bible study and your exercise of the interpretation of the word of God. And so that Holy Spirit is much more than the revelation that you see. It's much more than the things you never knew before that you suddenly realized as you were studying. He is actually there to give life, to give effect to what the word of God says objectively. That Holy Spirit is the spirit of transformation. And so when you study the word of God in the light of the Holy Spirit, you realize that there is a transformational power that comes with every such exercise. Uh, the final session here is basically to say that there is such a thing as questioning the text questioning the text. When I say questioning the text, what do I mean? Let's delve into it. Now, what I mean by that is to say that when you read scripture, it's important for you to ask a number of important questions. Questions like what, who, when, where, why. That's, that's, those, those are very important questions that you need to ask. And then there are the five W's and then the one H. The H is how. So you are going to be asking what, who, when, where, why. Those are the five W's and then there's the H and the H is how. When you take a passage of scripture, you should be asking yourself all kinds of questions using these six handles to say, what is going on here? What is going on here? You know, what is happening here? And then you ask who is involved. When you start to ask the question of who, you suddenly realize how this can broaden your study. So you, you, you come across a Bible character that maybe is referenced elsewhere or is mentioned elsewhere, but you are dealing with this person or you are meeting this person on, in this particular passage. When you ask the question who and you answer that question, you now begin to say to yourself, what do I know about this person? When is the statement about this person when was it made in other passages of scripture where was it made in other passages of scripture why were those statements made in other passages of scripture how is this person 
reflected or cast in the light of scripture and so that knowledge that you are seeking to get might actually take you far away from the current passage that is before you but it is part of what goes into some of the ways that you are able to make sense of the passage that is at hand so you may be looking at uh, someone and the person you are looking at has a couple of uh, 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 encounters with other characters in the Bible before the incident that you are reading about or after the incident that you are reading about and so you can say oh this was before this person became that, 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 that. Because sometimes when people look at people in scripture and they are trying to talk about them, they talk from a very holistic standpoint of everything we now know about the person. But in context, it may be that that person is still at a very, very early stage or in the middle point of their spiritual development in scripture so that some of the things that we are now attributing to them in the light of the story or the passage that we are dealing with, those things may not have been present at the time of the incidents that we are studying now or that we are reading now. So when you ask the question who you are dealing with characters, then you ask the question when you are looking at timing and there's a whole lot of questions you can ask when you are using the handle when, then you ask where, that is geographic, that is location, where did this happen? Where did this thing take place? What do we know about this place? What is significant about this place? The other day I was talking about uh, the story of Naomi and her family. And the Bible said that they, they were from uh, Bethlehem in Judah. And we said that there's a bit of an irony there. That there was famine in the land. And people living in Bethlehem were going over to Judah. Why? Because the word Bethlehem, that place Bethlehem means house of bread. So when you see a place that is designated to be the house of bread and people are running away from what is supposed to be the house of bread because of a lack of food, it, it, it should, it should, it should, it should grapple or it should grab your attention. Like, what is going on here? How is it that a place that is literally speaking supposed to mean the house of bread how is it that people who live in that place are running to somewhere else and not the other way around that people are running into Bethlehem how could it be that people are running away from Bethlehem and that simple question of trying to find out where this story takes place can open doors for you into all kinds of adventure in your engagement with the word of God and then you ask the question why Whatever you are looking at now, why is this happening? Why did this person do this? Why was this even written in the first place? And then you can ask the procedural question. The procedural question is a question, how? How did it happen? How was it executed? Now, um, what I will do tomorrow is to practically start to apply some of these, particularly the whole question in the text thing. I'm going to be taking more time tomorrow to do that. And then tomorrow we are going to be looking at other passages of scripture that we will try to explain and that we'll try to deal with in the course of our class tomorrow. So I'm going to bring this class to a close at this point and I'm going to ask you to uh, if you have questions arising from this current class, that you can leave your questions in the comment section, particularly tonight, which is the very day that we are uploading this video. So I will be picking questions from the comment section of 
this evening's teaching and incorporate them into my presentation of tomorrow. And then the teaching tomorrow also, I will try to be live to be able to respond to questions while the teaching tomorrow is going on because tomorrow is going to be the last uh, installment of this course. I do hope that this evening has been particularly uh, enlightening or at least it has been a blessing. If you have found it useful, I'd like for you to share this and uh, 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 subscribe to the, to the channel. Actually, if you are not subscribed to this channel, I'll ask you to subscribe to this channel, like this video, share this video, and if you do have a question, leave your question in the comment section. I have left this announcement to the end because I wanted to reserve this announcement to those that would have listened to the end. So if you can hear me asking you to leave your question in the comment section, I want to thank you because I believe that that's because you watched the video to the end. So tomorrow, the last installment, I will be responding to questions that are asked from this evening's uh, teaching. So till I come your way again tomorrow, I believe that you have been blessed and that your Bible study and Bible reading, Bible interpretation venture will receive a little bit of a boost from what we have done into this class and let me know uh, uh, if there are any things that I have said that you need further clarification about and I'll be uh, I'll, I'll try my best to respond to them when I come your way again tomorrow until tomorrow evening God bless you thank you <laughs>